of a dream. My four little children one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. U.S. forces give the nod. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. Politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They got you by the balls. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interests. That's right. They don't want people who are smart enough to sit around the kitchen table to figure out how badly they're getting fucked by a system that threw them overboard 30 fucking years ago. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers, people who are just smart enough to run the machines and do the paperwork and just dumb enough to passively accept all these increasingly shittier jobs with the lower pay, the longer hours, the reduced benefits, the end of overtime and the vanishing pension that disappears the minute you go to collect it. And now they're coming for your Social Security money. They want your fucking retirement money. They want it back so they can give it to their criminal friends on Wall Street. And you know something? They'll get it. They'll get it all from you sooner or later because they own this fucking place. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. If your dollar ain't shit, and it's tax to no end, calls a rich man, calls a rich man. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. because nothing will save the Governor-General. Boxing is nothing like going to war with machine guns, bazookas, hangar-aids, bomber airplanes. My intention is to box to win a clean fight. But in war, the intention is to kill, 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 and continue killing innocent people. Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring. Those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? 
You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? There are many whites who are trying to solve the problem, but you never see them going under the label of liberals. That, that white person that you see calling himself a liberal is the most dangerous thing in the entire Western Hemisphere. He's the most deceitful. He's like a fox, and a fox is, almost, is always more dangerous in the forest than the wolf. You can see the wolf coming. You know what he's up to, but the fox will fool you. He comes at you with his mouth shaped in such a way that even though you see his teeth, you think he's smiling and taking for a friend. I can no longer <laughs> remain in today's Democratic Party that's under the complete control of an elitist cabal of warmongers who are driven by cowardly wokeness. And that's why psychos run the world. Because they don't give a fuck. They don't feel guilt. They don't give a shit. They'll fucking kill anybody. You know, and nice people, we should be killing them, but we don't because we can't deal with the guilt, right? And what do psychos do? They stay in power by killing loud, nice people. Martin Luther King, loud, nice. I know he banged a bunch of broads. Who gives a fuck? Guy was fucking up there crushing it. If nice people start killing psychos, okay, maybe then you, would, you wouldn't have a swirl of trash the size of Texas in the middle of the fucking Pacific Ocean. Do we work on that now? Because there's psychos in the world, and all they end up doing is, is trying to keep improving golf equipment so these man-titted fucking cunts can keep a ball on the fairway. I put some dead in his eyes. Yes, socialists, sociopaths, communists, colonizers, capitalists, nihilists, and Nazis. Welcome to System Failure, a no-holds-barred exploration of the global fuckery that defines our time. Today, we are going deep into an emerging narrative about what really happened on October 7th on the border of Gaza and Israel. Now, this is explosive stuff, and just to be clear, I'm not making these claims. These claims are being made by heavy-hitting analysts like Charlie Kirk in the United States, like the Financial Times. Even Kelly Slater has expressed some serious doubt over the sequence of events that has formed the official narrative of the Israeli government. The big questions being asked are... Did the Israel government ignore intelligence that an attack was coming? Was a stand-down order given to Israeli soldiers once the attack was underway? And if so, was this because the kibbutz that was attacked was a hub of peace activists and opponents of the right-wing Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu? Could it be that Netanyahu was happy to sacrifice his peace-loving enemies within Israel giving him an excuse to go to war with Hamas. And has Netanyahu used this war to prolong his political career and seize more land and distract from his impending ousting by way of popular uprising on the streets of Israel? There's tons of content about to come at you, so heads up and ears open. 
it was a bit tricky how to know how to lay all this out for you. Uh, I had two options. The first was to pick through all the moving parts one by one and discuss each one uh, and risk losing sight of the, the bigger picture or arrange all the moving parts for you to see in one long monologue and then deliver our conclusions. I went with the second option. Kinda wish I went with the first now, but fuck it, it's done and we ain't doing it again. One piece of information that came out after the podcast was recorded was this article in the Financial Times that stated that leading Israeli intelligence officials were in fact warned of an attack by Hamas weeks earlier, but did nothing. Uh, Here's the actual report. Warnings of a looming attack on Israel by Hamas were dismissed, quote, as an imaginary scenario. Sentries on Israel's border with Gaza sent a detailed report weeks before the attack to the highest-ranking intelligence officer in the Southern Command. The report was sent using a secure communication system and contained specific warnings, including that Hamas was training to blow up border posts at several locations, enter Israeli territory, and take over Kibbutz Im. With all that out of the way, here's Lucy. Uh, I'm just glad to have you here and have uh, a sane person to talk me down out of these uh, kind of conspiratorial wormholes that I've descended into, um, but which we're going to get into on this program because that's what this is all about, uh, this new system failure series. I I don't want to leave any stone unturned in terms of getting to the truth and understanding the incentives and and motives at play in awful situations like that, which is unfolding in the Middle East at the moment. I mean, fuck, mate. I've stared at way too many dead and disfigured children in the last few weeks and come to understand aspects of the uh, U.S., and Israeli military apparatus uh, that are freaking me out, to be honest. And that's uh, not to throw any shade at Israeli people whatsoever and not to justify Hamas in any way, who are a disgusting terrorist organization as well as have their political arm in Gaza. But, mate, you've actually been there. You've spent time in these disputed territories in the West Bank. Uh, can you explain what you were doing there and, and tell us a bit about your experiences of that place? Yeah, so um, I, when I so when I was 22, I was just like out in the world wandering around. Oh, I think I'll start that again. Um, when I was 22, I was just out in the world wandering around um and this is like the most randomest visit to the middle east story i know that most people go to these places on tours and that kind of thing but um i had this wonderful uh shelter of naivety and ignorance and i was in zanzibar which is a little island off tanzania and it was beautiful and tropical and it was the first time 
I had been in a place that had real Middle Eastern influences, like in the architecture and um, the religion and that kind of thing. And I started to think, oh, I wonder what the Middle East is like. <laughs> Maybe I should go. And and then I met somebody while I was on the island who was um, going to run the Bethlehem Marathon um, in a, f- a few weeks later. And they were like, oh, we're like I'm going to to Bethlehem in Palestine to go and run this marathon. And I was like, oh, that's so random. I had no idea. I didn't even I didn't even know that Bethlehem still existed. I just thought that was like reserved for Jesus times. And um and so then I thought, okay, well I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go to the Middle East. And I had a friend in Israel who was there like on a sort of a long-term holiday. And so I the, the cheapest flight I could find was to Cairo in Egypt. And I just looked at the map and I was like, well, I could just go overland. And so I flew to Cairo and I got on a bus down to the Sinai, down to the Red Sea. And it was eight years ago. So 2016 or 20, yeah, 2016. And, um, and yeah, so it was like not long after they'd had quite a lot of sort of terror activity in Egypt, there were no tourists and I just had like no context at all. And I'm just like sitting on this bus going through the night, through the desert and just stopping like every hour and a half for the bus to get scanned and for soldiers to come on and like check our luggage and stuff. And I was like, this is just like intense security situation like I didn't even know and then I got to the Red Sea and all the beaches were private and I was like oh so you can't even really properly swim in the Red Sea I was like okay well I'm just going to go to Israel now so I um I just got a taxi to the Israeli border it was like four hours and you're just whipping along the coastline and um this taxi driver was driving so fast and he's like smoking his ciggy and you, there's just like all these big, like massive rocks and like the most insane landscape and just like dead camels on the side of the road. And then he just drops me at the Israeli border and is like, oh, there's Israel over there. And I was like, okay. And so I just go and stand in this line for immigration and, um, and I've met a couple of people in the line, like a couple of foreigners. And so we were all kind of, there was, it was like an American woman, an Argentinian guy. And we're, we're standing there and they go through the first stage of security, but I got singled out. And these, these security guys came and they, they were like, you know, can you speak English? And I was like, yeah, I can. And so they took me outside and they started like fully questioning me. What are you doing? What are you going into Israel for? And I was like, surf trip? And they were like, where's your surfboard? I was like, my friend's got one there for me already. <laughs> and and they they really asked me a lot of questions. And then and then and they and they had my passport. And then I went through to the next stage. They gave my passport to like the next sort of immigration part. And then she she didn't let me go through. She sent me to go and sit and wait in this waiting room and and then I got I was sitting there for maybe an hour and then then I got taken into a room and got like interrogated one-on-one by this security woman and um and I was just like so had no idea about 
anything. I was just like, there was the, it was just like this questioning of like, what are you doing here? But it was a lot of details, like what do your parents do? Where do they live? Why don't you live near them? What other siblings do you have? What do they do? Why don't, you know, like asking all those kind of questions. And I'm like, so have you Denmark WA? <laughs> Yeah, it's like this little town on this, like a beach town. <laughs> yeah, my parents are there. <laughs> and it was a long time in this room with this woman. And I just had like a one backpack. Like I was traveling so light. I just, I, I didn't have anything with me. And, um, but I'm, my parents are Kiwi. So I'm a dual, I've got dual citizenship and I got two passports. And, um, and I, right at the end, I just like mentioned that I had another citizenship <laughs> and that like fully flipped her out again. And, and, um, and then, so I had to sit back down and, and go through a whole nother bunch of questioning. And then when she finally was like, okay, you can go, I stood up and just like everything fell out of my bag onto the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like scraping up my stuff and just like trying to scuttle out of there. And, and I literally, I had no context. Like I didn't know anything about Israel, Palestine. Like I really didn't at all. And the, the people, my whole, the whole process took like maybe four hours and the people who I'd met in the line, they were waiting for me when I came out, thankfully. And then I just got on a bus and I went to Tel Aviv and, um, and yeah, and I was in Tel Aviv and met, some friends and partied and had a great time they got mad they got mad eckies in tel aviv eh? it's like the fucking it's like the the mdma like it's like the highest per capita consumption of mdma in the world i believe from uh, that documentary i think it's called attack of the happy people mad rave scene mad ghouls yeah like i did i met these i met this dj and i was like i was did a lot of clubbing and stuff when i was there it was really fun and but then it was like coming up to the Bethlehem Marathon time and the, the crew that I had met in Zanzibar, they were like, yeah, we're like arrived in Bethlehem, like we're going to run the marathon. Like, do you want to, you should come over and watch. And I was like, okay. And so I caught a bus to Jerusalem and I honestly, when I think about it, I'm like, how did I survive? <laughs> how am I alive? Like, I, I remember getting there and being like, there's like light rail and there's a lot of Orthodox Jew, Jewish people there. And, and, and then I just had booked a random hotel and I just walked over to East Jerusalem, which now I know is like the most contested place in the world. <laughs> and just like stayed in this Arab run hotel. And then I just woke up the next morning and was like, how do I go to Bethlehem? And they were like, oh, you just get on a shuttle over there. And so then I got on this shuttle and I went to Bethlehem. I got out of the, the shuttle in Bethlehem and it was parked right next to the Bethlehem wall, which is like this 18 foot huge wall that is built through the middle of, of Bethlehem that Israel built. And I got out and I was like, what's this wall for? <laughs> and, and then everything, then I, I started to become aware of, things I started to really learn and I got in a taxi and the guy the taxi driver he he was like oh I've got my kids in the car do you mind and I was like oh no that's fine I was like anyway so what's going on here 
And um, I didn't go and watch the the marathon. He just took me around all day and like showed me all of the the places and the the Banksy art and the different and the settlements and the and explained the kind of displaced forced displacement that happens and and then that night I about the marathon was finished but I I went to the after party and it was like there's so many old ancient buildings there there was like this palace type of building and then the after party was like in this cave underneath and I got in there and I was like isn't it like no alcohol here and people were just like buying um like bottles of liquor <laughs> over the bar like a whole bottle of of vodka or whatever and everyone's like smoking shisha it was so hot in there but I just was hanging out with this crew it was so fun we partied until 4am whatever and and I just had this like full-on political awakening of suddenly going okay this is like pretty there's there's a lot going on here and I I want to learn more about it and so <clears throat> I met someone and uh, like a, a friend or someone in the hostel who, <clears throat> sorry, she was um, traveling to Hebron. So I then, I traveled, I went to Hebron with her and, and Hebron is sort of one of the places where there is the most intense settlement going on. And when I say settlement, I mean the Israeli, illegal Israeli theft of Palestinian land by force and then the, the building of Israeli communities on that land. And um, Hebron is a city that is divided um, in parts and there's the old city that is largely vacant now there's a there's a Israeli settlement that is built right onto the back of it and like I'm I went into this building I met these this family and they live in this building and the the windows on one side of the building are boarded up because on half the building is Palestinian half of it, of it is Israeli settlement and um and what what happens in that city is that people are forcibly displaced out driven from their homes by set by armed settlers supported by the military and then israeli families move into those homes and claim them as their own and there's entire so in that interim period between when the palestinian people are forced out of their homes and before the israeli people move into those homes there is um there is just entire suburbs with no one living in there they're just they're just empty and in Hebron is uh the tomb of Abraham which is it was a mosque and obviously I mean some people might know this but Abrahamic religions are Christianity Judaism and Islam and they all stream from they spring from the the well of of this person or someone called Abraham and his tomb is in that mosque slash now synagogue and in that in nine in the early 1990s uh an American uh Israeli settler um went into the into that mosque and and shot and killed I think it was like 20 something people who were in there praying. And from after that, they split the building into be half mosque, half synagogue. And so Jewish people enter from one side and Muslim people enter from the other side. But there's a checkpoint for Palestinians. So if you're Palestinian and you want to go in there, you need to go through 
a, a checkpoint where there's soldiers who you check you you have to take things out of your pocket and get scanned and go through to go into that mosque but for Jewish people you don't have to do that you can just go in um so it was a big it was a big learning curve very steep learning curve but it was so interesting my reflections after was like you know it was it's obviously a, a hard place but it, I enjoyed myself so much like I had the best time <laughs> <laughs> because I met so many lovely people and, you know, I was couch surfing and hanging out with friends and yeah, it was, it was really fun. And I bet you met beautiful people on both sides uh, of that wall in Palestine and Israel. And, and I guess, you know, that's what we're, we're trying to get to the heart of right now uh, is that these are the people who, who suffer in situations like this and, uh, and yeah, you get crazed individuals like this uh, American settler going on a, a shooting rampage. I mean, I thought crazed Americans going on shooting rampages only happened in America, but uh, I guess no, it can happen anywhere. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and you mentioned the aggressive settler colonial expansion in the West Bank. I mean, the period you were there was, well, maybe it was during a different term of israel's prime minister netanyahu's reign but you know the, the current iteration of that government the, the israeli government is the most right wing in the history of israel and, and and just before this war there was hundreds of thousands of people in the streets weekly um demanding uh the resignation of that prime minister uh and and this terrorist attack and this war really has prolonged his career and it likely end the moment this conflict reaches a ceasefire. So uh, we'll get a bit more into that later on, but there is an incentive there for this, uh, you know, unapologetic fascist uh, to keep dropping bombs and, and maintain a state of war. Uh, and, and so talk us through what happened when you brought the things that you'd learned in Palestine back to Israel uh, and, and your friends in Israel, like, you know, how did they react to what you were learning? Because it, it's actually really rad that you went there with a, a totally blank slate. You know, you, you have the uh, beautifully naive uh, upbringing in, in a utopian beach town in Denmark, uh, preceding your time in the most, you know, politically contested place on earth. So you're going in there with, 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 with a, a really clear set of morals and values when it comes to what's fair and uh, just and, and reasonable treatment of, of people. So, you know, when you took, well, what were the conversations like back in Israel uh, after this experience? Yeah, I, I like, I was so glad that I went there without any preconceived ideas. Like, I think, you know, if I had gone there already with my kind of like um, my ideas about the place already um, established, then everything I would have witnessed would have been, you know, either validating that view or, or whatever. And it, it wouldn't have been, I don't think I would have experienced it in the way that I did. And the thing that was really struck me about it was like, you know, when we talk about armed conflict, we talk about 
we there's you know in the in the media and that kind of thing it's very sanitized what's talked about it's it's always like about military targets and um you know like collateral damage and these kind of things when those words mean are human beings right and like collateral damage is the is the death of of, of innocent civilians and military targets are are still humans in the military and and that kind of thing and and the thing that I really realized was like why all that we ever hear out of a place like Palestine and Israel is just these stories of war and we don't hear these stories of of humanness and and normalness you know like I met these two sisters in Hebron who took me around to their house for dinner and it was the most profound experience, one of the most profound experiences I've ever had because we're like, they're like worlds apart from me, linguistically, geographically, religiously, culturally. And yet the one thing that they wanted to talk about was like, what's it like to be with different male partners? <laughs> and one of them had been married as a second wife and I was like, well, what's it like to be a second wife? And... And then it was like they wanted some help, like setting up their spare room as an Airbnb. Like it was just so normal. And and I just feel like like the narratives of war just like they just remove, they just erase that. And it's it's heartbreaking. And and I think that, you know, like the, the Israeli media internally is a propaganda machine and I think that the the ongoing occupation is very dependent on on the compliance of that propaganda machine and so it was hard going like getting on a bus and going back to Israel to like just leave and 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 go and go back to my life and and have that way out when you know like we in Hebron we sat on this hill and you could see the Mediterranean Sea and you could see the Dead Sea on either side, and you, you, but the Palestinian people could not go to either place. And and meanwhile, we're like sitting there, and there's like soldiers in a tower watching you with guns. And and then going back to Tel Aviv, <clears throat> the people that I was hanging out with there, like the guy who was hosting me, Moshe, he actually spent, because everybody has to do military service there, he actually spent most of his military service in military prison. Um, wow, but, really? Yeah, because he didn't want, didn't want to do it. Oh, like, what a legend, man. Those the, you know, those people are fucking goats. That's what Muhammad Ali did, you know? Yeah, like, and, and I mean, just the most respect for that. But the thing that I really, just in the conversations with the Israeli people I met, like, young people just just so over it like they just don't just don't want to have war anymore like it's just so not what anyone wanted to be doing and whether or not that like that's not proposing any kind of political solution but I I it really made me feel for everybody because even though it's like there's a there's a state there's there's you know it's like these political objectives that are being pursued at the expense of people who are just having their lives so impacted. And and even though, you know, like when I, you know, before I went to the West Bank, I was in Israel and asking, you know, going, oh, so what's, what's going on with the, uh, the war? 
and <laughs> and people you know they they have this it's a it's quite a strong narrative about you know it, it can never be solved because um like Palestine has a terrorist government um and so they 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 can never be a partner in peace and which is 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 very like Israel's done a the the government's done a great job in in making that narrative be sort of something that everybody leans on well hey hey look they set up Hamas they they resourced them they created Hamas for this exact uh, reason I imagine because Hamas like the right-wing Israeli governments they they both oppose a two-state solution mm. um you know both of them want a one-state solution I Hamas wants to rule Israel Israel wants to rule Palestine the government that is and the point you make about young people not wanting to fight an old decrepit man's war which is what they fucking all are always waged by some grub who will never have to fight himself but but that apathy towards war that is the political solution in my opinion the political solution is to simply fucking sit down don't fight like you know this is what gandhi did this is what muhammad ali did you know the jails will overflow with people who don't want to fight and, and once they don't have uh, any space in the prisons for the people who don't want to fight uh, they're going to have to stop forcing people to fight. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was, it was, it was very interesting having those conversations. And I think it was, the, I think the hardest, the, I think the biggest thing that it was, is preventing like the move towards peace is that Palestinians and Israelis don't know each other, you know, like you don't, you don't talk to anybody in Palestine when you're living in Israel you don't you don't know what it's like to be there you don't know that there's just regular old people and and it, it struck me how culturally similar everything was you know it's like the food and everything I think there's some contestation over why but it it kind of it made me just be like I just wanted to be like guys <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> like oh my god you, it doesn't have to be this way <laughs> and 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 i i yeah i i and i i felt like the idea then of um you know like that that anybody would want to also get rid of israel i understand why but i also understand that that's very complicated for people who live there right like and and if you think about it here in any settler colonial society, like here in Australia, if there was a First Nations uprising to turf um, the ninety seven percent of people who were non non Aboriginal out of Australia, where would we go and what would we do? Mm. I mean, if that happened, okay, but I honestly have no idea what a solution would be. And and I and it it made me very acutely aware of the fact that if we're gonna um, you know, criticize the settler colonial um, project of Israel. Like it's very, it's very convenient to do that here, set, sitting in our, our own settler colonial totally. project. Totally, I couldn't agree more. And and that's one thing that this whole conflict has rammed home is that we're basically Israel in this country, uh, in terms of occupying uh, someone else's land, and um, yeah, that's just. That's just facts, man. So uh, you, you really do have to remedy, like, you know, spare no expense or resource in remedying 
the trauma you've caused by land theft and, and, and what precedes land theft, which is massacre and slaughter. Um, so there's no other way to get rid of people from their land other than fucking kill them and herd them onto little reservations uh, where they're over-policed uh, and, and subject to a completely different set of rules. Like that's exactly what we did in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's in- very, it's very interesting now, like seeing the big global uprising for peace and calling for a free Palestine, like it's indigenous people around the world at the very forefront of that. Um, and it's kind of like, yeah, I think that in a lot of ways, the occupation of Palestine is, is a symbol of, you know, global occupied people. And, um, and it's a symbol of how much work needs to happen across the globe in order to kind of, you know, like we can't, yeah, like that thing, like none of us are free until Palestine's free. And it's such a, it's, it's so true for Indigenous people across the world who have had their land stolen and lost their rights and lived under occupation and police violence and all that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it was a, it was a really, like, it was the most, like, I feel like that trip was my first investigation of like political awareness up until that point i was just like cruising you know <laughs> mate and, and i'm right there with you like uh i was just thinking today that i think there was a, a protest of a million people on the sydney harbour bridge against the iraq war and uh you know if i was there there would have been a million and one but i wasn't um because anything that wasn't about surfing or football i had no interest in um, but as you get older and, uh, you start to learn how the world really operates, uh, particularly with the kind of naivety that so many Australians come to the party with, like, I guess I wasn't as naive as a lot having just, um, fucking suffered under the, the stupidity of, uh, capitalism and, and a bullshit housing market in Sydney. So like, I, I already had the, a, a bit of a, an understanding of how cruel, uh economics could be and how degrading that that whole experience of having a fucking move house every 12 months was but um at the same time like it really wasn't until like yourself um starting to travel abroad starting to you know consume uh really is the the work of john pilger his documentaries that was the red pill or the blue pill or whatever the truth pill that I, that I swallowed that, and there was no turning back from that. And I encourage everyone to watch those films. And I've been watching him uh, the last week, just rewatching him to uh, kind of enhance my understanding of the patterns of colonialism and particularly this current era of, of the American empire that we're living through and, and their interference in various governments around the world in these uh, insidious, secretive ways, uh, and, and this Israel conflict bears all the hallmarks of, of what went down in in Chile, in in Guatemala, in Indonesia. Um, yeah, it, it's suspect, deeply suspect, and we're going to get into that. Um, but before that, uh, I also want to make the point: like you work for the Greens now, who are one of the real supporters of peace in the Middle East through the the prism of you know supporting Palestine, but not in a not in a, an anti 
Israel way. It, 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 it's a similar way, um, you know, or a similar strategy that you'll find amongst peace activists in Israel, really. Um, so can you give us uh, any insights into the Greens' position on all this? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I work for the state Greens, so um, we don't have as much um, involvement in the kind of like the international political pressure that happens at the federal level. There was been some sort of big protest moves in, in federal parliament where the Greens uh, walked out of question time um, and, and that kind of thing, calling for a ceasefire and a free Palestine. But in, um, yeah, I think like, Peace and nonviolence is at it's a core pillar of the Greens values. So, um, and that is that's peace with justice. So, um, I I did a um, I did a master's degree in in peace and conflict studies, and ideas around peace are that there's there's two types of peace. There's negative peace and there's positive peace. Negative peace is the absence of violence of you know it's like a ceasefire type of thing. Positive peace is um, is a is a peace that has has justice and freedom and liberation and all those values inbuilt into it, and that is like a lasting a lasting kind of peace. Um, and so the idea, I guess, with with Palestine, it's it's such a core issue in the Greens, and it is it is something that has has is impacted in in the kind of internal politics of the party too. You know, like not everybody has the kind of understanding of the intersection of uh, like, you know, the movement for environmental and climate justice and how that operates um, in conjunction with uh, the movement for free Palestine. Um, and so some, there is always some people in the background who are going, Hey, why are we doing all this stuff about Palestine? It, you're supposed to just be about the environment. <laughs> um, but, and the, but there's been, it's, yeah, there's been sort of um, those people are idiots, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like the things that we've been doing a lot is is about the right to protest. So um, there's obviously been big uh, Palestinian Palestine protests going on, and you know there was a blockade of a of Zim shipping lines ship in Botany Bay. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, that was big and. and uh, a big part of that was the Maritime Union, uh, the MUA here in Australia. You know, I've had many friends who are part of that, working on the walls down there at Botany, uh, on the tugs, etc. And um, I'm a, I'm big I'm a big fan of the MUA. Uh, and uh, the reason that that is is because they are fearless in terms of standing up to corporates, standing up to the government, and they control shipping channels. They have incredible influence, and they really are one of the key bastions. Uh, of standing up for, for, you know, peace and uh, dignity for the working class. Uh, and super interesting uh, noting that the fashion in which that protest was shut down, a lot of people were arrested. Um, uh, there was a fair bit of drama down there from what I understand. And I understand also that there's a big, a big move now to stop the export of military aid to Israel from Australia, which I think is, completely warranted can't believe that we're sending anything to a military that's carrying out uh the kind of indiscriminate bombing of civilians in in, in palestine and i wonder how that's going to pan out because uh you know if the australian government thinks it's going to be using any of the ports uh around the country to export 
that military aid to Israel, uh, yeah, they might want to think again because, um, I mean, we, we've seen what the MUA, MUA have done over many decades, uh, including uh, they had that amazing stand they took. Uh, it was about it was just prior to the outbreak of World War II where they refused to ship, I believe it was iron ore to Japan um, because they rightly predicted, given the imperial leanings of Japan, that that iron ore may be turned into munitions, which would then be used on us. And they were dead right. And the government and the corporations at that time tried desperately to, to break that strike and they couldn't, uh, as, as far as I remember. But uh, even if they did, the point is still that these guys um, are fearless and they they stand up for, for peace and, and what's right. And they'll, they'll put... Uh, their bodies on the line for that and uh, full credit to them and all the, the, the students and concerned citizens um, from Sydney, my hometown that showed up on the wharf there to, to protest that, that, that shipping uh, group from Israel. Yeah, I think um, the MUA, um, uh, I have I usually described as the first to stand in solidarity and the last to back down. Um, which is, I mean, that's pretty awesome. And I think like the, the trade union solidarity with Palestine is, is a, is such a, um, it's such a symbol of how solidarity can and should work, you know? Um, and, and also, I mean, I guess we'll probably talk more about the, the, the kind of role of capitalism in, um, in the occupation of Palestine. Um, Lucy, can you yeah get up a bit close to that mic or or turn it up? Oh, yeah, I think it's up to um, just yeah the role of um, of capitalism and the occupation of Palestine is is key, and so I mean to have the unions marching alongside and and um, being part of the global movement for peace it kind of it signals a lot in the powers that that are at play I think. Mm, mm. Uh, yeah, let's get into some of the powers at play. So as I mentioned, uh, I've been watching a bunch of John Pilger documentaries and maybe too many because it's sent my conspiratorial mind into overdrive. Um, now, yeah, so this is a, a, a pretty controversial theory that's been, uh, posited by an influential, right-wing commentator of all people, Charlie Kirk. He's a um, conservative activist and, and radio host. And he was on the, uh, he said this on the, the Patrick Bet David podcast in the US. Uh, Patrick Bet David is an Iranian-born American businessman and part owner of the New York Yankees. So, you know, a, a heavy hitter with a major platform. Uh, and here's what Charlie Kirk said. How did these guys not know this was taking place? So I've been in Israel many times. The whole country's a fortress. When I first heard this story, I still had the same gut instinct that I did initially. I find this very hard to believe. I've been to that Gaza border. You, you cannot go 10 feet without running into a 19-year-old with an AR-15 or an automatic machine gun that is an IDF soldier. Right? The whole country is surveilled. And so, so let, me let me just kind of go through this. We don't talk about Israeli politics very often, and most Americans don't know this. The last nine months, Israel was on the brink of civil war. 
It's not an exaggeration. This judicial stuff, there were, there were hundreds of thousands of Israelis taking to the streets because Bibi Netanyahu was basically redefining the Israeli constitution. That's not an exaggeration, right? He said the judicial branch has too much power. There were protests planned this week against Netanyahu where they anticipated tens of thousands of people to take to the streets. That's all gone, Patrick. Netanyahu now has an emergency government and a mandate to lead. I'm not, I'm not to go so far that saying that Netanyahu knew or there was intelligence here, but I think some questions need to be asked. Was there a stand-down order? Whew. Was there a stand-down order? Six hours? I don't believe it. Israel's the side of New, size of New Jersey. When I took a helicopter ride from Jerusalem to the Gaza border, it's 45 minutes. Wow. Six hours. They're live-streaming the killing of Jews. Was, did somebody in the government say stand down? That is a legitimate non-conspiracy question. The whole country is the IDF. <laughs> the whole country is. Yeah. And you're trying to tell me that they're going to concerts and kibbutzes and schools and by reports, six hours. Let's say it's three hours. That's suspect. At, Go ahead, Rob. It's also not like a right-wing uh, reporting. This is from the New York Times. The long Thank wait you. for help as massacre unfolds in N Israel. Nine I can't hours. think of a more liberal yeah. news outlet than the New yeah. York Times. But the fact is now Bibi and the Israeli hard-right government has a mandate. <sighs> i got to be careful the way I say this. To They're going to try to ethnically cleanse Gaza. <laughs> yep. I mean, that that's... And I'm, I don't use that term lightly, okay? Th they're talking about basically removing 2.5 million people mm -hmm. from there, Okay. And honestly, they have a mandate to go seek justice and revenge. They do. There is this idea that they need to have a truce or a peace treaty. That's morally crap after you see women and children be burned alive and dragged to the streets. But there are some serious questions here, Patrick. And the GOAT, Kelly Slater, uh, can be found beneath this video asking a few of those questions. Uh, yeah, he, he, the GOAT. Smelling a goat spiracy in the making, no doubt, offered some very insightful commentary uh, to the tune of 423 likes and actually a really interesting thread. So this is what Slater had to say. One thing that really threw me off, and I've asked a couple of Israeli friends about it to no clear answer. Some of the concert goers that got shot in their car but got away went to a military outpost and were greeted by only Hamas militants there who had taken over the outpost and presumably killed everyone there. This car took off and everyone in it got shot, but then they sort of got away and the car died. They scaled a 10-foot fence and ran for their lives and hid in the woods for hours. Slater then asks, how does an outpost get taken over close to the concert, hours before the concert, and nobody is tipped off. No alarms, no phone calls or texts or anything from a secured area. It makes no sense. Back to the chat with Lucy. Before you, you answer, Lucy, I'm going to rip through the, the chronology of the events, uh, some of which were listed by Charlie Kirk, some of which weren't. Uh, but this is all 100% fact. Uh, so the question that these commentators putting forward uh, yeah, I'm not here to say w w whether it's true or not, but all questions are valid, I reckon. Uh, and it's just more food for thought, isn't it? So the chronology is this. Uh, so Israel helps to set up Hamas. Uh, and this is all from 
The Intercept. Uh, this is quoted from The Intercept, which is uh, an independent publication set up by the former Guardian journalist and iconic truth teller, Glenn Greenwald, um, who I believe was the guy Edward Snowden used um, as his touch point to, to leak secrets. And he's, he's really one of the, the top uh, journalists in the world. Um, one of the very few guys I, I trust. So his publication, uh, they, they were talking, they had this to say, um, Brigadier General Yitzhak Segev, who was the Israeli military governor in Gaza in the early 1980s, uh, told a New York Times reporter that he had helped finance the Palestinian Isla Islamist movement as a counterweight to the secularists and leftists of the Palestine Liberation Organization and the Fatah Party led by Yasser Arafat. Uh, the Israeli government gave me a budget, the retired Brigadier General confessed, and the military government gives to the mosques. Hamas, to my great regret, is Israel's creation. Uh, that was a quote from Avner Cohen, a former Israeli religious affairs official who worked in Gaza for more than two decades. Uh, he told that to the Wall Street Journal in 2009. So uh, this is again from Intercept. First, the Israelis helped build up a militant strain of Palestinian political Islam in the form of Hamas and its Muslim Brotherhood precursors. Then the Israelis switched tack and tried to bomb, besiege, and blockade it out of existence. In the past three decades alone, Israel has gone to war with Hamas three times in 2009, 2012, and 2014, killing around 2,500 Palestinian civilians in Gaza in the process. Meanwhile, Hamas has killed far more Israeli civilians than any secular Palestinian militant group. This is the human cost of blowback. When I look at the chain of events, I think we made a mistake, David Hasham, a former Arab affairs expert in the Israeli military who was based in Gaza in the 1980s, later remarked. But at the time, nobody thought about the possible results. Um, so just scrolling down through my notes here, uh, Israel's finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, one of the most extremist members of the most extremist Israeli government coalition to date, offered uh, an unusually frank assessment of the government's approach to Hamas in a 2015 interview. The Palestinian Authority is a burden and Hamas is an asset, Smotrich said at the time. It's a terrorist organization. No one will recognize it. No one will give it status at the International Criminal Court. No one will let it put forth a resolution at the UN Security Council. So, uh, I mean, what a boon all that was for the military industrial complex. Like, you know, no need to, def to justify spending on the defense budget when you're in constant peril from a terrorist organization you helped create. Um, so uh, the two-state solution I mentioned earlier, um, yeah, so... Many Israelis, including uh, both Netanyahu and Hamas, do not want a two-state solution. That is Israel and Palestine existing separately with separate governments. Uh, Netanyahu wants Israel to go. Yeah, so we, we kind of covered this. Um, and yeah, I think uh, what they call people like Hamas and um, Netanyahu and his acolytes, they call these people, uh, I believe it's offensive realists, which is kind of like the academic term for war pig. Um, yeah, it just means that uh, Israel now gets to pump money 
into the American arms industry engage in an eternal war, sending young Israelis to their death, along with thousands of Palestinians. This is the guaranteed outcome. Uh, and then there's the impending ousting of Netanyahu. So prior to the outbreak of this war, uh, as I mentioned, hundreds of thousands of Israelis were on the streets uh, protesting his judicial reforms, which basically meant that, uh, you know, the claim was that these reforms will severely undermine the country's democracy by weakening the judicial system, which is the only tool for keeping the government's use of its powers in check. That's from the BBC. Among those on the streets, Yuval Noah Harari, the iconic uh, writer, philosopher, historian, and meditation uh, legend. Um, yeah, so... As I mentioned, this is the most right-wing government in Israel's history. Uh, and when those terrorist attacks happened, uh, those protesting immediately stopped and joined the volunteer effort to help those affected by the attacks and uh, who were caught up in the subsequent conflict. So Netanyahu and his, his fascist cabinet essentially in that, in one foul swoop, with this uh, outbreak of, of war uh, and the uh, preceding terrorist attacks, turned all of their enemies into all of their acolytes. It was absolutely genius, whether it was intentional or not. Like the outcome for him from this has been perfect. Um, uh, as you mentioned, there's also been this ongoing aggressive Israeli settler expansion in the West Bank. Um, again, this is like a, a function of a, of, of a right-wing fascist dictatorship. I mean, all wars are fought over land theft, basically. Land and women is the saying, I believe, from uh, <laughs> Shantaram. Um, and so, yeah, this guy is right to then pose this question, did Netanyahu and his ministry, uh, like, did, were they aware of this or, you know, did they issue a stand down order? I mean, you really got to wonder because uh, oh, there's a further aspect to this. And, and this was something Yodin put me onto. Um, he's an Israeli peace activist, a young bloke, a surfer who we had on the podcast recently. And he made the point that so the people who were the, the kibbutzes that were attacked, like kibbutz um, Berry, for example, these were a hub of peace activists. Um, and not to mention this rave or this music festival that was attacked again, you know, generally another hub of peace loving acid and MDMA enthusiasts, you know, youth, uh, essentially not the people who want to be out there uh, covered in flak jackets and fucking sticking guns down people's throats. So um among those killed, uh, among the peace activists killed was uh, Vivian Silva, a 74-year-old Canadian-born Israeli uh, who's lived in Israel since the 70s and, and spent decades working to foster peace between Israelis and Palestinians. Um, those taken hostage included Yoshevet uh, Lifshitz, a peace activist who'd uh, helped transport Palestinians in Gaza for treatment uh, to Israeli hospitals. Um, and, and she was actually released and you probably saw the video that when she was released, uh, she turned to one of the armed balaclava clad militants and, and shook the person's hand and, and uttered the Hebrew word for peace, uh, Shalom. Um, and according to NPR in America, a total of 10 Israeli peace activists were among the hostages taken and a further nine have been murdered. 
Uh, and, and that's, you know, the documented peace activists, like you're also talking about the children of these peace activists, the friends of these peace activists, kibbutz is uh, such a, a classic and, and utopian concept, um, which I really love where, you know, you have these communities of shared values that wrench back control of, of economics um, from these kind of centralized banking systems. And they, you know, pool their resources within the kibbutz to grow food together, to put those from the kibbutz through uh, tertiary education and, uh, you know, lead them in, into professions. It's like this, this localized community structure that I think is, is basically an MO in an, by another word, you know, and it, it, we don't really have the, the formal structure of this in Australia, but fuck, we could, we could use it. It's genius. Reminds me a lot of the, the Banjar system in Bali, but yeah. So Kibbutz, um, Bari, where the majority of the slaughter took place is the main donator to Road to Recovery, a charity with 1,300 volunteers in Israel and Palestine, which transports Palestinian to Israeli hospitals. So uh, they, they transported a total of 1,650 Palestinians to Israeli hospitals in 2023 alone, and they've raised 400,000 pounds for vital medical treatment and equipment for Palestinians. So it was this community that was ransacked unopposed by Hamas for at a minimum six hours uh, in a country with the best resourced and most advanced security apparatus in the world in which literally every citizen is either a current or um, ex-military serviceman. Um, so yeah, uh, just to repeat the that right-wing American commentator's claim, is it feasible that there was a stand-down order? Um, it's all of this is so convenient that there's one other aspect to it. Uh, the Abraham Accords. Um, this was a, a remarkable peace deal that had fostered unprecedented cooperation between various Arab states and Israel. It was, I believe it was one of, well, it was, it's an American initiative ultimately. Um, and it was three years in and going pretty good, but it's in absolute tatters now, thanks to this conflict. Um, and here's just a statement from, the Abraham Accords. We, the undersigned, recognize the importance of maintaining and strengthening peace in the Middle East and around the world based on mutual understanding and coexistence, as well as respect for human dignity and freedom, including religious freedom. We encourage efforts to promote interfaith and intercultural dialogue to advance a culture of peace among the three Abrahamic religions and all humanity. We believe that the best way to address challenges is through cooperation and dialogue and that developing friendly relations among states, uh, friendly relations among states advances the interests of lasting peace in the Middle East and around the world. We seek tolerance and respect for every person in order to make this world a place where all can enjoy a life of dignity and hope, no matter their race, faith, or ethnicity. We support science, art, medicine, in commerce to inspire humankind, maximize human potential and bring nations closer together. We seek to end radicalization and conflict to provide all children a better future. We pursue a vision of peace, security and prosperity in the Middle East and around the world. In this spirit, we warmly welcome and are encouraged by the progress already made in establishing diplomatic relationships between Israel and its neighbors in the region under the principles of the Abraham Accords. We are encouraged by the ongoing efforts 
to consolidate and expand such friendly relations based on shared interests and a shared commitment to a better future. And so we arrive at the present right now with around 14 and a half thousand dead Palestinians, uh, including 6,000 children. Uh, there's 391 dead Israeli soldiers on top of the 1200 uh, innocents killed in that initial attack. And you have a war that's prolonged the life of a, a fascist government who has, uh, you know, been pretty much unapologetic in its determination to seize more land on the West Bank and, uh, you know, not roll back these kind of apartheid um, conditions that Palestinians are living in. Um, and look, there is one other one other bit of news that that fucking blew me away that coming out this week um it is uh so mate I don't, I don't know what to say about this like this is one of the wildest things i've seen it it's a uh a video that's circulated on vice news and various other publications of a former u.s national security advisor in the obama administration uh, a jewish man by the name of stuart seldowitz uh, who's been done by the cops uh, for hate speech uh, and, and like various charges of stalking. Um, there was three charges. I, I can't remember what they all were, but uh, basically this guy was going around and just unloading rants on like whatever Arab food cart vendor he could find on the streets. Uh, and, and he's been filmed. Uh, the police were reluctant to apprehend him. So a community left led effort put pressure on the police and uh he's been nabbed and charged um and mate the stuff he's he's just spraying at random american arab working class people is some of the most offensive insane shit and you're gonna hear it in a second we killed four thousand palestinian kids you know what it wasn't enough it wasn't enough go go Wait. It's not my fault that you pray to a criminal. Listen, listen, I'm, I'm working now. Do I buy something? No. Okay, go. I don't want to go. I'm born here. But you're a terrorist. You support terrorists. Listen, go. Did you rape your daughter like Muhammad did? Hmm? Did you rape your daughter like Muhammad? I don't speak English. You only speak English? No, no English. No. You don't speak English? Yes. Alright, well, that's, that's, see, that just shows how ignorant you are. Because, you know, Muhammad was a rapist. You speak Arabic, the language of the Quran, the Holy Quran, that some, some people use as a toilet. <laughs> what do you think of that, people who use the, the Quran as a toilet? Does it bother you? Does it bother you? Tell me the truth. I don't speak English. You don't speak English? Ah, it's too bad. That's why you're selling food in a, in a food cart. Because you're, you're ignorant. But you should learn English. It, it'll help you. Of course, When they yeah. deport you back to Egypt. But get this. This guy was, and I'm quoting the Vice News report, Deputy Director and Senior Political Officer in the U.S. State Department's Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs from 99 
to 2003. So the exact period in which the September 11 attacks uh, by Al Qaeda took place, this guy was a, a leading voice on uh, Israeli and, and Palestinian affairs. Um, uh, I'll get your take on all this. It's pretty fucked up. It's pretty yeah. fucked up. And look, like there's also another thing that went viral. Yeah, why don't we? We got time. I'll, I'll give you the full the full context to what's going on before I, I come to my fucking conclusion to all this. Um, and that is the uh, Osama bin Laden letter to America, uh, which went viral on TikTok this week. Um, and the transcript of which has been published on, on Newsweek. Um, this is, uh, yeah, like not long after the, the September 11 attacks. Um, uh, you know, look, there's a bunch of fucking, yeah, so this is what he had to say. I'll just go the, the full transcript. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, the most merciful, permission to fight against disbelievers is given to those believers who are fought against because they have been wronged and surely Allah is able to give them believers uh, victory. That's uh, in the Quran, verse 2239. Those who believe fight in the cause of Allah. And those who believe fight in the cause of Tagut, uh, which is, uh, so fight you against the friends of Satan. Ever feeble is indeed the plot of Satan. And that's in the Quran, verse uh, 476. Uh, some American writers have published articles under the title on what basis are we fighting? These articles have generated a number of responses, some of which adhered to the truth and were based on Islamic law and others which have, which have not. Here, we wanted to outline the truth as an explanation and warning, hoping for Allah's reward, seeking success and support from him. While seeking Allah's help, we form our reply based on two questions directed at the Americans. Number one, why are we fighting and deposing you? Number two, what are we calling you to and what are we calling you to and what do we want from you? As for the question, why are we fighting and opposing you? The answer is very simple, because you attacked us and continue to attack us. Uh, A, you attacked us in Palestine. B, Palestine, which has sunk under military occupation for more than 80 years. Uh, the British handed over Palestine with your help and your support to the Jews who have occupied it for more than 50 years. Uh, years overflowing of oppression, tyranny, crimes, killing, expulsion, destruction, and devastation. The creation and continuation of Israel is one of the greatest crimes, and you are the leaders of its criminals. And of course, there is no need to explain and prove the degree of American support for Israel. The creation of Israel is a crime which must be erased. Each and every person whose hands have become polluted in the contribution towards this crime must pay its price and pay for it heavily. It brings us both laughter, uh, see, uh, sorry, it brings us both laughter and tears to see that you have not tired of repeating your fabricated lies that the Jews have a historical right to Palestine as it was promised to them in the Torah. Anyone who disputes them on this alleged fact is accused of anti-Semitism. This is one of the most fallacious, widely circulated fabrications in history. The people of Palestine are pure Arabs and original Semites. It is the Muslims who are the inheritors of Moses peace be upon him, and the inheritors of the real Torah that has not been changed. Muslims believe in all of the prophets, including Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad. 
peace and blessings of Allah be upon them all. If the followers of Moses have been promised a right to Palestine in the Torah, then the Muslims are the most worthy nation of this. When the Muslims conquered Palestine and drove out the Romans, Palestine and Jerusalem returned to Islam, the religion of all the prophets, peace be upon them. Therefore, the call to a historical right to Palestine cannot be raised against the Islamic Ummah that believes in all the prophets of Allah, uh, and we make no distinction between them. The blood pouring out of Palestine must be equally revenged. You must know that the Palestinians do not cry alone. Their women are not widowed alone. Their sons are not orphaned alone. You attacked us in Somalia. You supported the Russian atrocities against us in Chechnya, the Indian oppression against us in Kashmir, and the Jewish aggression against us in Lebanon. Under your supervision, consent, and orders, the governments of our countries, which act as your agents, attack us on a daily basis. These governments prevent our people from establishing the Islamic Sharia, using violence and lies to do so. These governments give us a taste of humiliation and place us in a large prison of fear and subdual. These governments steal our Umar's wealth and sell them to you at a paltry price. These governments have surrendered the Jews and handed them surrendered to the Jews and handed them most of Palestine, acknowledging the existence of their state over the dismembered limbs of their own people. The removal of these governments is an obligation upon us and a necessary step to free the Amar, to make the Sharia the supreme law and to regain Palestine. And our fight against these governments is not separate from our fight against you. You steal our wealth and oil at paltry prices because of your international influence and military threats. This theft is indeed the biggest theft ever witnessed by mankind in the history of the world. You're occupied. So, so, sorry, there's like EFG. We're going down through the fucking alphabet here, all of uh, Bin Laden's reasons. Your forces occupy our countries. You spread your military throughout them. You corrupt our lands and you besiege our sanctities to protect the security of the Jews and to ensure the continuity of your pillage of our treasures. You have starved the Muslims of Iraq, where children die every day. It is a wonder that more than 1.5 million Iraqi children have died as a result of your sanctions, and you did not show concern. Yet when 3,000 of your people died, the entire world rises and has not yet sat down. You have supported the Jews in their idea that Jerusalem is their eternal capital and agreed to move your embassy there. With your help and under your protection, the Israelis are planning to destroy the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Under the protection of your weapons, Sharon entered the Al-Aqsa Mosque to pollute it as a preparation to capture and destroy it. These tragedies and calamities are only a few examples of your oppression and aggression against us. It is commanded by our religion and intellect that the oppressed have a right to return the aggression. Do not await anything from us but jihad, resistance and revenge. Is it in any way rational to expect that after America has attacked us for more than half a century, that we will then leave her to live in security and peace? You may then dispute that all the above does not justify aggression against civilians for crimes that they did not commit and offenses, and offenses in which they did not partake. This argument contradicts your continuous repetition that America is the land of freedom and its leaders in this world. Therefore, the American people are the ones who choose their government by way of their own free will, a choice which stems from their agreement to its policies. 
Thus, the American people have chosen, consented to, and affirmed their support for the Israeli oppression of the Palestinians, the occupation and usurpation of their land, and its continuous killing, torture, punishment, and expulsion of the Palestinians. The American people have the ability and choice to refuse the policies of their government and even to change it if they want. The American people are the ones who pay the taxes, which fund the planes that bomb us in Afghanistan, the tanks that strike and destroy our homes in Palestine, the armies which occupy our lands in the Arabian Gulf, and the fleets which ensure the blockade of Iraq. These tax dollars are given to Israel for it to continue to attack us and penetrate our lands. So the American people are the ones who fund the attacks against us, and they are the ones who oversee the expenditure of these monies in the way they wish through their elected candidates. Also, the American army is part of the American people. It is these very same people who are shamelessly helping the Jews fight against us. The American people are the ones who employ both their men and their women in the American forces which attack us. This is why the American people cannot be innocent of all the crimes committed by the Americans and Jews against us. Allah, the Almighty, legislated the permission and the option to take revenge. Thus, if we are attacked, then we have the right to attack back. Whoever has destroyed our villages and towns, then we have the right to destroy their villages and towns. Whoever has stolen our wealth, then we have the right to destroy their economy. And whoever has killed our civilians, then we have the right to kill theirs. The American government and press still refuses to answer the question, why did they attack us in New York and Washington? If Sharon is a man of peace, Sharon is, uh, was Israel's leader back then. If Sharon is a man of peace in the eyes of Bush, then we are also men of peace. America does not understand the language of manners and principles. So we are addressing it using the language it understands. Question two, uh, as for the second question that we want to answer, what are we calling you to and what do we want from you? The first thing that we are calling you to is Islam, the religion of the... Uh, so... <laughs> it's a fucking long letter. Holy smokes, I'm just looking at the rest of it. Uh, we're pretty much two-thirds of the way. Should I, should I keep going? I mean, sure. It's pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting. Um, and it's, man, you got to know, uh, you got to get inside the minds and motivations of your enemy, uh, whoever they are, like you need to know. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm by in no way validating any of this, but this is what, um, powers Islamic extremists and, and terrorists. So, uh, I don't really want to be the victim of that. Um, so therefore uh, I would like to, uh, understand their motives better so we can you know, offset any of them if possible. Um, so just to continue, uh, the first thing that we are calling you to is Islam, the religion of the unification of God, of freedom, of freedom from associating partners with him and rejection of this, of complete love of him, the exalted, of complete submission to his laws and of the discarding of all the opinions, orders, theories, and religions, which contradict with the religion he sent down to his prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Islam is the religion of all the prophets and makes no distinction between them. Peace be upon them all. It is to this religion that we call you the seal of all the previous religions. It is the religion of unification of God's sincerity, the best of manners, righteousness, mercy, uh, uh, and on and on. He talks about religion. Uh, the second thing we call you to is to stop your oppression, lies, immorality, and debauchery that is spread among you. 
We call you to be a people of manners, principles, honor, and purity, to reject the immoral acts of fornication, homosexuality, intoxicants, gambling, and trading with interest. We call you to all of this, that you may be freed from that which you have become caught up in, that you may be freed from the deceptive lies that you are a great nation, that your leaders spread amongst you to conceal from you, from you the despicable state to which you have reached. It is saddening to tell you that you are the worst civilization witnessed by the history of mankind. Oh, mate. I don't know if I can keep reading all this. It's, it's fucking endless. But uh, like... Should we, should we talk a little bit about terrorism? What is it? Where does it come from? Sure, sure. I mean, I guess like to wrap it all in, in a neat bundle, the thing that's been rattling me is that it just seems like the terrorist activity, the wars, and ultimately the deaths of millions of innocent people, Western, Eastern, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, atheist, gay, straight. It's all part of some sickening holy war based on thousands of year old scriptures, most of which have been manipulated and doctored beyond recognition anyway. Uh, and, and, you know, we're like, we're living in a world that is basically run by Christian and Jewish Zionists uh, on both sides of the US government, by Islamic extremists on the other side, and all us innocents, the, the regular working folk who just want to have a good time and raise their families are just pawns in the wars that these grubs will never have to fight in themselves. I mean, yeah, that was a lot of, uh, it's a lot of info and it's very interesting that um, I, it's, it's actually fascinating that Osama bin Laden's letter has suddenly got all this traction. It's like 22 years after its publication, The Guardian took it down a few days ago. Um, and all these young people on TikTok posting like my entire, I've just found out that my entire life was a lie. <laughs> and um, I think it's very, it's very interesting, the concept of terrorism. Um, and I'm in no way saying anything, you know, questioning um, Osama bin Laden's definition as a terrorism, but there's this very intense uh, and calculating politica politicization of, of listing an organisation as a terrorist organisation because once somebody is considered a terrorist, you, you have the permission to not see that person as a human anymore and that they are rogue unreasonable unreason un they cannot be reasoned with and um and so in order to undermine particular uh movements their uh, um imperial forces imperial governments um take the opportunity to list organizations as terrorist organizations we saw it in Sri Lanka with this the Sinhalese uh, far-right government that slaughtered thousands of, people, of, of Tamils on the beaches, that they justified that murder by the terrorist activities of the Tamil Tigers. And, and they still, there's still people in Sri Lanka, young Tamil men who have forcibly disappeared um, and justified by um, a rhetoric that is about preventing the um the establishment of, of a further uh, non-state armed group such as the Tamil Tigers 
and we see it in um, in Kurdistan and the listing of the PKK, which is the um, the Kurdish armed movement, and the the Turkish government. They're listed. They're listed as a terrorist organization here in Australia too, and 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 it's they're like Kurdish people view them as the resistance movement, and Kurdish people are persecuted and killed and locked up and and forced off their land by. I mean, by multiple governments, but in, in this specifically, in the case of Turkey right now, in in this case, in what I'm talking about, and it's 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 an imperial um, domination of of Kurdish people, and the 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 leader of the the peace movement, um, uh, Ocalan, he's locked up and definitely was captured by the CIA, um, and he's he's locked up in in a Turkish prison and. Um, Kurdish people are, un are unable to organize and protest and take peaceful action because as soon as they do that, they're identified as sympathizers of the PKK and and therefore terrorists. And and so there is and and we recognize the PK we have the, the PKK listed as a as a terrorist organization because of our, our political ties with Turkey. And and that is like and it and I think seeing that and knowing that it it I, I mean it provides context on why certain organizations are um are, are listed as terrorist organizations um and like when you think what is the definition definition of terror right terrorism right it's it's the killing of innocent people to pursue a political objective and so if we apply that then then we can see the US military and the and the IDF as state sanctioned terror and um yeah i think it's a it's a very important point to make that when we talk about hamas and as a terrorist organization um which is what they do they have killed innocent people for a political objective but we also need to un be, need to be aware of the fact that the term terrorism is used to undermine political, peaceful political movements. And um, and you've seen that in the last few weeks that, you know, there's conservative politicians standing up and saying that the the, Palestine, the, the peaceful Palestinian protests across the world are a Hamas, pro-Hamas uh, protests to try and take... How ridiculous. That, that's one of the fucking stupidest yeah. things. Like... Uh, you know, I've been to those, I, I went to a protest uh, the other day for, for Palestine, but mate, like uh, I've got no beef with Israelis. Uh, I got, you know, I, I just really am opposed to the, the slaughter of innocent people, especially women and, and children in any context, in any country. Uh, it doesn't really matter what flag I'm standing in front of. And I think it's very, interesting well it's it's very um it's very sad for the future i think what's going on in gaza right now because like when you track what the formation of terrorist groups like isis was created out of the ashes of al-qaeda because you had a whole generation of people who were completely traumatized by the actions of the US military and, and their allies, including Australia, who, you know, children in their homes who store into their beds in the night and take their parents and, and never see them again. And 
those videos from Abu Ghraib, that that prison where US military um, people were torturing and peeing on the bodies of, of Iraqi civilians who were locked up there. And that that level of trauma is what drives extremism and that displacement and that lack of guidance and support and all of those things um people people join they people want to belong to something and have a cause and and terrorism terrorist groups can can offer that in the same way that you know cartels and that kind of thing can offer that too and and that leads to it so it's a it's like if you respond to that with indiscriminate violence all you do is create more problems and you know if you're trying to get rid of Hamas for every child that's lost their family in this um, violence for every one Hamas that you kill you're probably creating 10 more um and maybe that benefits Israel's objectives of of always having a justification for the violence and a and a testing ground for their weapons. Um and I think, yeah, I think that it's basically it's it's pretty tragic, not just for what's happening right now, but for the prospects of peace in the future. Mate, and, and, and peace for all of us. Like all the experts are saying all that this has done uh has basically laid the groundwork for future terrorism to occur not just in israel but all over the world um and you know reading bin laden's letter just makes that fact more obvious uh so mate like we're in for a rough few years because of this shit and fuck mate who knows who's going to be the victim you don't have any control over that um so uh yeah like really like it is incumbent upon us to rid ourselves of the fucking war pigs and the the corporations that benefit from war and poverty and resource theft like oh no at this point my internet inexplicably drops out probably because of Mossad or the CIA this final part of the interview is conducted over the phone. Yeah, I mean, the, the question about Israeli technology that is used, um, this is like part of the thing about why the struggle is is so integrated for people across the world, like such as, um, you know, when you talk about women's rights and one of the things that people say is like, well, why do you support Palestine, if Hamas are so sexist and and I mean, there's that's it's flawed in so many ways that that argument. But one of the things to consider is um, how the Israeli um, private security company Black Cube was hired by Harvey Weinstein to pursue and stalk um, on American soil journalists who were trying to uncover his. Um, his decades and decades of sexual violence against women. Um, wow. <laughs> just if there was not enough reasons to be worried. Right. So the sexism goes both ways. And of course, uh, Mossad, I believe, came up with Pegasus, the software. This is an inc- like an incredible uh, and, and terrifying piece of software, which basically enables uh, the government to hack your phone and I believe turn on 
the camera and, and so you, you can record uh, what's being said or what's happening through someone's phone at any point. Uh, and that was used, that was used by Saudi Arabia um, in the assassination of uh, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi inside of a Turkish embassy, I believe. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, we're kind of getting, a, a, yeah, we're diverging a bit from, I, I wanted to, what you mentioned about um, the sexism and stuff is interesting though, because yeah, like as we just heard in, in Bin Laden's letter, like this Sharia law or this like hardline um, interpretation of the Quran and, and Islam, uh, much like the you know hardline interpretation of the Bible, uh, let's be honest, forbids homosexuality, uh, adultery, um, and, and, and like we know that uh, Hamas, uh, well, yeah, we know that the Arab world is can be a very unfriendly place in places for uh, homosexuals. Uh, I know that you're an LGBTQ plus advocate. Um, So it's it's awkward terrain uh, in a sense when you're uh, trying to champion uh, a, a peoples when they're oppressing your people. Yeah, it's really interesting that, like, and it's been put to me a few times. I've been posting about things in um, Palestine and social media and, you know, a lot of people who now seem quite genocidal, I think, <laughs> um, in hindsight, but who have said, how how can you support these people? Who, like, how do you reconcile, um, you know, standing, like, being in, a feminist and, and a queer advocate and that kind of thing? So, yeah, uh, you were talking about reconciling the fact of being a, a feminist and a LGBTQ plus advocate. Uh, we've also been an advocate for the plight of Palestinian pe- people, um, some of whom oppress uh, these people that you're an ally with. Um, and I guess at the end of the day, in some ways it's irrelevant because that's not what this war is about. And, and to, to use that as a justification for this war is not right because we're not in there bombing uh, children and, and women because of the oppression of gays and women. Uh, that's a justification <laughs> yeah, yeah, well that, for the bombing. That's the so, thing, but, right? but at the it's, it's like, okay, so say, right... There was a big transformation in Gaza under Hamas around. There was a big um, uprising for queer rights and women's rights and they they got equal equal rights under the law in, in Gaza and guess what? Still oppressed by Israel. Still oppressed. <laughs> and so it's kind of that thing. It's like, hang on. So we are saying that we should, and, and like, you know, Israeli bombs are killing um, Palestinian queer people and women. And in fact, like armed violence always and invariably disproportionately impacts women. And so it's like, it's such a, it's such a, it, it's such a misfire and it's such a, an argument that's used to just try and undermine progressives, people who are tr- advocating for free Palestine, to try and question what, how can you stand with those people 
who are homophobic and sexist. And, like, firstly, not everybody is homophobic and sexist. Do we just, do we advocate for the murder of people on the basis of that? We we have homophobic and sexist people here in Australia and we don't advocate for the murder of them. We advocate for change, right, to change those minds, to get people better rights. And when your entire life is taken up with advocating for the just the fundamental freedom of self-determination and to be free from occupation, how are you supposed to then also advocate for the... Pro- what was that noise? Oh, gone. Oh, so like if you if you were if you're fighting for the fundamental right just for your just for statehood, self determination, how are you supposed to also fight and advocate for you know progression of of women's rights and and queer rights in that in that circumstance, you know? And so it's like if we're gonna like to even have the opportunity to have progress in that department in Palestine, first you need to get rid of the colonial power that's occupying them and, and subjecting them to, you know, your everyday <laughs> your everyday reality is is like has p- people with guns bearing down on you. And so how how is that that kind of movement to make change in any other way going to happen. Like, we didn't get gay marriage in Australia because somebody just decided. It took years and years and years of advocacy and organising and and all that kind of, like, that social movement work that happens. And how are you supposed to do that when you're also living under the occupation of colonial power? And so I, I think that it's when people raise that, it's it's purely for the purpose to undermine, um, like, support um, of, of people who who are, like, sort of in a progressive space, I think. And it's it's not about the rights of women or, you know, and then so often the people that raise that are conservatives who actually don't really care about the rights of women or gay people. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, <laughs> and... and <sighs> I mean, I think the the democratic rights of Palestinians is exaggerated. Uh, you know, yeah, sure, they elected Hamas, but, like, I mean, who's monitoring those elections and, like, uh, who, who are you going to vote for? The guy with the machine gun uh, pointed at you or the, 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 the peaceful party? Like, um, and I think that influence of hardline... Islam in a lot of these countries is yeah uh, the rea- the the karma of colonial uh, interference in all of these countries and, mm-hmm. and uh, it, so yeah it's and also like the also the thing about the the democratic election of Hamas Hamas came to power in two thousand and six forty percent of Gaza before this this period of violence were, were under voting age. So I don't think that there is necessarily a, a broad legitimacy um, of the govern- government of, uh, governance of, Gaza, of uh, Hamas, you know? Like, did they really vote for Hamas or were they not born yet? <laughs> yeah, and let's not forget Hamas was set up by Israel, so... Yeah, and... It, it's and, really worked out perfectly. And then I think always, yeah. also, like, the, there's, there's always this 
sort of the use of Hamas to like being a terrorist organization to justify um, Israeli violence. But then as soon as people say that, it's always like, what about Hamas? What about Hamas? What about Hamas? And you, and you can, you say, well, sure. Okay. If that's the case, then how do you explain the violence in the West Bank where Hamas are not in power? And, um, and it's always a little bit of an awkward silence, I think, in those conversations because it's like the the Palestinian Authority or the State of Palestine, as they call themselves, um, they they recognise the right of Israel to exist. Like they they're not Hamas. They're not. They're totally separate and totally different. Yet, even before October seven, more than two hundred and fifty uh, Palestinian civilians had been murdered in in the West Bank, and not a single one of those deaths made the media. Mm. And Hamas was set up by Israel uh, specifically to oppose the Palestinian Authority, uh, who are happy to recognise the state of Israel. And uh, I assume, uh, this is ignorance, you may know uh, whether they were in favour of a two-state solution. Like, uh, mate, yeah, this this right-wing government in Israel... They've destabilized the entire region mm-hmm. and world. Uh, and it really reminds me of those prophecies of George Orwell uh, that we would in the future be locked in an eternal state of war uh, that you just kind of hear about in the, the media in these kind of, uh, you know, the plain vanilla language of like that you were mentioning, collateral damage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's literally what we're living through. Uh, and the, yeah. the threat is an existential one as well. It's now terrorism. It will be with us for the foreseeable future. Uh, and it's a, the boogeyman. It's, not, it's fuck, mate. The enemy can come at you at any time, uh, <laughs> for any point, and it, ju- it yeah, can justify I mean, any raft of security measures and uh, tightening controls. Yeah, before it was communism, right? That was the threat that could come at you from any direction. And now it's terrorism and soon it'll be, I don't know what it'll be, but it's always a its always a bunch of rhetoric to kind of, you know, if you've got an enemy over there, then you stop looking at the enemy within, right? And I think that's probably the strong part of the Israeli strategy. And I think, I mean, what you were saying about whether or not there was a direction to stand down. Um, it's very circumstantial that, and I, I wouldn't want to say anything until there was hard evidence. But, I mean, I do feel like there probably would be some evidence that would come out in the future in regards to that because it does seem... I mean, I got a bus from the Egyptian border to Tel Aviv, which passes the entire length of Gaza, and I think it was like four hours, and that was on a bus that stopped. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah i think it's um it does seem does seem strange I yeah think. the counterbalance to that argument uh was brought up by yuval Noah harari in his podcast with sam harris which i think is a must listen he's one of the greatest minds on earth and he's an israeli and he makes the point that uh once the response was underway that uh, it takes a long... They, they were basically engaged in urban warfare and having to go house to house uh, to uh, eliminate and remove terrorists. Um, so it wasn't an easy procedure. But 
the fact that Hamas could just ransack communities unopposed to begin with is just fucking baffling and that there was no whispers in the in- intelligence community, you know, in, in a fucking country that invented the Pegasus software. Uh, yeah. It's, it's hard to believe, man. And, and it all, it all fits so perfectly with the, the stated and unstated motives of the current government and the situation they're in at home. So, Oh man, it's fucking, it's, it's a heavy thing to contemplate. And there's also the, the stuff about, um, that is also been circulating again, speculation, but it's, I mean, so much as underpinning the, all of the destabilization that has happened, um, in the U S that has been carried out, oh, sorry, happened in the Middle East. It's been carried out for the U S has been motivated by fossil fuels. Right. And there's mm. the whole thing about the gas fields, um, the, the gas in under and around Gaza that um, there is, I don't know, there's, there's, a, there's a view of, um, of kind of the Israeli desire to have access to that, um, which is very interesting given, you know, like we see that as what underpinned the whole invasion of Iraq when there was that was the Saddam Hussein's possession of um of weapons of mass destruction was used as a justification but that turned out to be um a complete lie <laughs> for for 20 years that was a lie and um yeah i think that's always something that and and that's also what signals the kind of like how a big part of how this um this crosses over with the climate movement, right? Like if we if we didn't have fossil fuels anymore, um, if we were not using them anymore, how many wars wouldn't happen? <laughs> I think um, something to think about too. Mate, that is such a good point. And uh, I said before, all wars are fought over land and women. That's the quote from Shantaram, but it's really uh, what's on that land. Uh, and you can find any uh, colonial or neo-colonial action or conflict all over the world and, and you'll find uh, oil or rubber or tin or tungsten or gas or coal or copper uh, at the root of it underneath the land that's being conquered and like a further point to that i mean like just this shit's like on the record mate the fucking american presidents didn't bother to hide what they were saying in the 1950s i think it was eisenhower at the time uh referencing vietnam and indochina said that tin and tungsten is all important to our uh you know objectives as a nation and must be secured and uh very shortly after oh there's a a war in 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 vietnam and uh it's about communism it's not about the the resources uh that that are being contested yeah maybe the communists and uh the capitalists are contesting those resources uh maybe the communists are the nation themselves who are trying to nationalize those resources and tell countries like America uh, to fuck off. This belongs to us and our people and we're going to process and uh, distribute the profits from these resources amongst the people. Uh, You see that in in places like Venezuela. Venezuela, Um, But then uh, when country... 
when countries do stuff like that, uh, when they nationalise resources uh, and, and want to charge a, a decent price and, and redistribute the wealth amongst their people, they're faced with the problem of uh, being barred from the global uh, market yeah. of trade, sanctions, um, yeah. and, and, and their economy is crippled and buckled and the people starve. Uh, and I don't know much about the history of Iraq, but I do know about the history of uh, Venezuela and Central America and, and South America and, and Vietnam, these so-called um, you know, communist countries uh, have been vilified and demonized in the press, uh, but there's a whole part of the narrative that, that's been left out. Uh, and then you look at a place like Indonesia where uh, America got its way and they got its uh, mm. dictator, um, President General Sahado, and who embezzled like $32 billion from that country yeah. who are still mired in abject poverty and the most, of the most disorientating and confounding kind. Um, you know, the, the meanwhile, the CIA and MI6 and uh, ASIO facilitated the the, the murder of, uh, I think it was like between 500,000 and a million left-leaning um, students and, and uh, uh, the opposition to Sahado, the, the, the uh, people who were in favour of Sicano, the socialist leader who was leading this global uh, solidarity amongst Asian and African nations, uh, an amazing figure in history uh, in, in some ways. Um, so... There is this other narrative that you'll never get because we exist in a information simulation uh, that is powered by capitalism and corporations. Uh, and that is fact. Uh, and you, you need to step outside of that simulation to really understand what is going on in the world. And you have to. Because the truth does set you free, ultimately. And none of this shit will ever make sense to you. Uh, until you get outside of, of this uh, kind of informational silo that we're in, it, it's it's a real disaster, and that's what this program's about. Um, and you know, I come from the John Pilger, Julian Assange uh, school of no holds barred truth telling. Um, and I, I don't have dogmas or ideologies. I don't uh, I don't subscribe to to, to any of that because. Uh, you know, I'm, I take what I do seriously and, um, and that's telling the truth. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's the way it is. I, 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 it's whatever I say, it, it can often come at the expense of, um, ideologies that like socialism that I might seem sympathetic to, but yeah, look, I'm, I, I'm definitely, uh, <laughs> at this point, not very capitalist minded. I think capitalism was great, by the way. I, I think it got us to a certain point. Um, and, and now uh, we need to, you know, gave us technology and an abundance of resources and automation. And now it's time to redistribute those profits uh, amongst the people. And uh, yeah, that is the end of that rant, Lucy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, um, it's really interesting what you say about the, um, the information simulation, like the role that the media plays in um, allowing these kind of things to happen is um, is like it's huge, right? And our media so broadly has been captured by corporate interests. You know, these um, media don't want to publish particular things because they lose their advertising if it doesn't suit that, that particular corporation or whatever it is. So it's kind of like our media has broadly, our mainstream media anyway, has become so um, 
uh, it's so complicit in in war crimes and genocide and occupation and and up and apartheid and and it's 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 interesting how that works and that how big that it's you know like the media is meant to be an accountability mechanism and it's like the fourth estate of democracy but in actual fact it's it's now become such a, a machinery or like part of the machinery and I think like a prime example of that in this case with Israel and um, Gaza is when that uh, that woman was released, the hostage, and when she shook the um, Hamas balaclava-clad man's hand saying shalom, and then the interview with her after, the, in the whole interview, like in the, the longer form of the interview, she talks about, you know, they treated me well and we ate together and, um, like, she kind of, she she didn't, speak like she had been tortured or anything like that. What she said was actually pretty, like it was, it was not, it wasn't bad, you know? And then, but at the start of what she said, she was talked about when she was actually captured and it was, you know, she was grabbed and taken on a motorbike and, and the, and the headline, all that was, was put out by BBC and some of these big media organizations um, was, I went through hell. And it only shows the part of the interview where she talks about how she was captured and how that was um, a horrible experience. And I'm in no way wanting to excuse anybody's actions in this, but I think it's very interesting how the entirety of what she said was not really broadly shared, despite her actually saying that she was treated pretty well when she was there and when she was when she was captured when she was in in a hostage situation and so it's like the media goes oh that doesn't fit the narrative of um Hamas being this animalistic terror organization and so we just won't show that bit and then everybody consumes that and all that does is then um you know like galvanize people's views and really you're not actually having access to the whole information and it's such a um like there's there's a concept called peace journalism that it's all about um trying to show more complete stories that promote um that that move us towards peace and away from war and and the rest of journalism is just war journalism because it it's profiting off violence and then you get people mm, who try yeah, to people, the headline Hamas to... treats hostage well doesn't really resonate, does it? <laughs> no, doesn't get the clicks, you know. And then you get individuals who under try and uh, to undertake to disrupt this, expose war crimes, um, and and show the world, you know, what the terrible things that are happening, and you end up in Belmarsh for a decade. Yeah, totally. Uh, oh, man. I mean, look, I've got one story that, that really goes to the heart of this. I met with a the editor of one of the, the biggest newspapers in Australia. I won't say the name of the newspaper because they might sue me. Uh, but not, not because this is false, just, you know, to chew up my fucking resources. Because, uh, yeah, just we're in a pretty litigious, uh, defamation-heavy society here, unlike America. But uh, this chick, uh, yeah, I had a beaver at the Gladstone 
Uh, oh no, sorry. That the the Chippo uh, in Redfern in, in, in Chippendale. Um, and I had a story about the Bentley blockade, which was about coal seam gas mining up here on the north coast of Australia. Uh, and it was a good story. And uh, I pitched it to her in person, and she said that's a great story. Like I would personally love to print that, but the paper I work for, uh, that will never happen because, uh, the company behind that is one of the biggest advertisers, uh, in this, in this media empire, in this media organization. And, uh, you know, full credit to her cause she just said it straight to me. Uh, and you know, just to, that happened, that that's a situation that, happen um so you can imagine what else happens in that media realm Mm -hmm. it's so rotten to the core and and i got to experience that you know i worked for both you know i've written articles for the guardian that article by the way ended up in the saturday paper um and i've written for you know the saturday paper the guardian news limited i've been across that that spectrum and, and you wouldn't believe how hard it is to get stories up that are dead true, but that attack the big levers of capitalism. Uh, and I guess, you know, the, the military industrial complex, the, the resource industry, uh, petrochemical resource, fossil fuel resource industry. These are, these are two of the, the biggest players um, in this kind of financial system that we exist in. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's interesting, um, like working for the Greens and this, and with like you know, I'm a media advisor, so we deal with media all the time. And um, it's you know, like we get a lot of stories published and that kind of thing. But when it comes to election time, to get a, an article for the Greens like about something to do with the Greens in the news is like, it's it's so so difficult. And um, and it's it's really interesting the power that that, that has on like uh, on electoral outcomes um, because you know if the Greens were given proportionate coverage to how much how many seats they have in Parliament there would be a lot more airtime right but Greens and power doesn't suit <laughs> corporate interests and I think there's you know it, it doesn't fit a narrative of a two horse race either so. Um, you kind of see it from that angle too of like how um, it's not just about reporting the news, it's about corporations or organisations also protecting themselves and and those people who make a lot of money out of that wanting to keep on doing that. Um, So, yeah, it's interesting on the media and I think, you know, like these, like I don't know about what Hamas's media strategy is but I know like Saddam Hussein used the media as such a tool in his, um, his tyranny, you know, and like, and, and there's, you know, things that have happened where the militarization tactic is taken up by, um, by resistance movements or terror organizations just to get media coverage and get people to pay attention to what they're doing. Um, and because they know that war and armed violence will make it into the media. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of, uh, I think the, the media has more power than than the everyday person really realises. And I think we often just think, oh, it's just covering the news, that's all it's doing. <laughs> but it's not. 
I stopped reading the news, newspapers, um, for years because I was so adept to detecting the spin on the articles from both sides of the political spectrum that I just had to stop. It was sickening. It made me angry, um, and it was literally making me sick. So I just I stopped, and I've, I've just started again. Uh, a few weeks ago, but ultimately the beauty uh, of what is happening now is, is the medium that we're communicating in, i.e. podcasts, which are basically the, the, the biggest revolution in information technology in hundreds of years, like since the printing press was invented. Um, there are no gatekeepers here. Like we can uh, talk freely uh, and openly and there is no bourgeois elite editor uh, from a wealthy private school that can shut this kind of conversation down. Um, so that's a good thing. And, uh, you know, we're seeing similar to after the printing press, uh, when you had like this age of enlightenment where, uh, you know, the, the leading scientists uh, and, and, and minds and philosophers were able to uh, disseminate information amongst the masses, creating this age of uh, incredible learning and, and development and evolution in, in our species. We are again at a point like that. And um, we are now seeing the biggest names, uh, the heaviest hitters, the greatest minds once again um, congeal on this medium and have these amazing long-form discussions which could never take place uh, in, in the format of television or newspapers which are, are just so constipated and small and silly and, and, and fucking redundant, completely redundant. So, uh, you know, I, I really encourage people to go out there and, and to listen to the Lex Friedman podcast, uh, to, 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 to uh, find every podcast that Yuval Noah Harari's been on, to listen to Russell Brand's podcast, um, uh, uh, for, you know, Joe Rogan. Uh, there's, there's many actors in this space um and, and finally though uh lucy like a, a big part of system failures is coming up with solutions uh to problems and i mentioned before i don't know if uh, it got cut out in the, the dodgy uh, internet connection but you know that it was incumbent upon us to rid our society our political sphere of these fucking reptiles these uh resource industry reptiles these military industrial complex reptiles um, these greedy, opulent, fucking uh, fools who are often powered by bizarre religious beliefs that are hidden. And we have to get rid of these people because they're putting us all in danger and in jeopardy, not to mention what they're doing to people abroad. So, you know, what are the, the practical steps to rid ourselves of these people? Uh, obviously, we, we've seen the action of the Maritime Union down there in Botany. Um, uh, for me, it, it seems to me that, that the major bulwark against this kind of, uh, these capitalist interests running roughshod over people are unions and trade unions. Um, and I, uh, I would say everyone should, should join up uh, sounds it's a bit hypocritical given I won't join the media entertainment and arts alliance because I just reckon they're a joke. I've I've been a part of it and they're just they're just another kind of bourgeois institution as far as I can tell. But um, you know, generally workers' unions uh, are not as far as I know. Although there are people um, that may think differently. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean the. The only thing that's going to make any change at that at the moment is is the is growing and sustained global movement for peace. And I think that you know these collective action, nonviolent actions are 
the antithesis of everything that um, the sort of the state violence and the the, the imperial alliance that is um, causing this violence um, to, to rise up, um, join a protest, be on the streets, just to be a body, you know, just to be there, stand there. Um, and, and march also makes you feel a lot better marching and chanting, you know. <laughs> I feel like when I've been the, in the depths of hopelessness, walking down the main street of Sydney, in the middle of the road with 50,000 other people, um, feels pretty good. And, and I, you know, the, these movements, they, it takes time, but they can, they can deliver outcomes. Like the Vietnam War ended with people's movement you know and I think um that that is basically the main action that we can take and our politicians who are not listening and who have the power to apply political pressure um they will start to see the electoral risk that it poses to them knowing that their um their position as an elected member is um becoming more weaker and weaker as more and more people um take the streets. So I think that that's the most powerful thing we can do. I think something that I've really been learning about over the last um, six weeks or seven weeks is that, you know, it's like this, this, there is, there's no other um, sort of conflict around the world that affects people so much. I don't think in terms of that there's Palestinian people and Jewish people in our communities because of the years and years and years of displacement that has happened. And, um, and so it's, it feels personal. And I think it, like, to me, I, it, things get under my skin so easily. If people, somebody says something, you know, in, in defense of Israel's sort of genocidal actions, and it, it makes me furious. And to try and not act on that fury and instead try and think about what, you know, like if, if I'm getting furious at people in my community, what hope do we have for people there, you know, to ever reach a resolution and to have understanding towards each other. And so to just really try and <laughs> act on that instead and think, all right, like to understand that people, the fury that I feel, someone else is feeling that too. And to, to try and, actually have dialogue and, and consider the idea that um, we can we need to find peace amongst ourselves too. Mm. Empathy and, and breaking bread uh, among us mm. is key to peace. And also, yeah, a good point that you make. I mean, the solution to all this is, is the same as it was decades ago, and that is protesting. It is a simple matter of feet on the street. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, we've seen it. Uh, it ended the Vietnam War, uh, and it, it needs to happen. It needs to happen again, doesn't it? I mean, that that like ultimately, politicians love protests, I believe, because it, well, the good politicians do because uh, it gives them an excuse to make uh, powerful uh, moral decisions that otherwise they might not be able to you know they can point to the hundreds of thousands of people on the street and, and say to their corporate uh overlords that look what do you want me to do these people are on the street i have to act on this i have to 
make a decision based on what they want. You know, protests are uh, the way people converse with power. So yeah, yeah. the solution is the same. It, it, it's it, it's to protest. It's to strike. It's to, to to walk out on school. It's to walk out on jobs. It's to shut uh the economy down like it's a level of peaceful non-violent militancy um that is required to to get this world back on track the solution is never going to be violent you know like the violent violent action is never going to lead to a peaceful outcome it's it's like and i think i like i actually from seeing the movements over the last few weeks and seeing the young people and this like awareness that young people have um, that I, as a young person, never had. Like there was school strike for Palestine yesterday where thousands of students around the country were taken to the streets um, to communicate with the leaders that their expectation is um, to move towards uh, a peaceful resolution and a free Palestine. And I feel like that, that seeing that kind of, action happen makes me think well maybe one day in the future it will be resolved because those people will be in power one day <laughs> so I've, I'm, ho- I'm holding out hope for that i guess well said me too well thanks so much lucy uh mate bleak times but uh, i guess it's up to people like us to discuss uh, potential solutions and kind of shake free of this informational simulation. Yeah, and I think you're so right about the, you know, things that are longer form to be able to actually explore these issues and this kind of, um, like, there's so many different dimensions to this at play and it's not just a Israel versus Palestine um, soccer match that some people like to frame it as and, so it's um yeah thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about things at length <laughs> that's fine and actually it was the australia versus palestine soccer match and i haven't checked the score yeah. but i assumed we pumped them but uh we gave we them a bunch of uh, money we, a lot of the players donated money we didn't we we won but it was it was three two. Oh wow yeah. Oh, fuck it up, the Palestinians, mate. How much go and grit have they got in them? Unbelievable. Oh, I know. I know. It's like three of their their players are, like, in Gaza. Um, you know, they couldn't play because they are searching for their families and stuff. And so <laughs> when you think about that and then, like, the rest of the team is there giving it to the Socceroos, um, I, when you, I just feel like, seriously... Trying to defeat Palestinians just seems like a fruitless effort. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, well said. Sport as a metaphor for life. Yet again, it reigns supreme. That is so true. Uh, Up the Palestinians. I don't know what their emblem is, but up the fucking Palestinians, mad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, Yeah, I think um, sport has been an incredible arena to see the um, acts of of defiance and protest be carried out over the last few weeks too. It has, yeah. There's been a lot of sportsmen. Usman Khawaja, the the iconic uh, Australian Test cricketer. Just, you know, I love the way that these people make their points too. Like in very 
the typical sportsman way, which is, you know, no dogma, no ideology, just a simple plea for peace and empathy and, and fucking basic levels of human decency and compassion. Uh, and when you see the, the kind of heavy-hitting sportsmen uh, like the Socceroos donating match payments to Palestine, like Usman Khawaja, like Sonny Bill Williams coming out and, and making these pleas, you know that something fucked is going on because like generally mm. the, these people uh, have no uh, political stance whatsoever um, and now they do. Yeah, I feel like um, I I love the, the Irish solidarity with Palestine and um, you know, people that have lived under British um, imperialism and uh, the kind of like banning of Palestinian flags and then showing up in thousands carrying Palestinian flags. Um, Irish people are uh, big on resistance, which is it's been very cool to follow too. Yeah, I think that's the the Celtic uh, soccer club, which I believe is actually Scottish, but uh, oh. their their founding folklore is uh, it was a club that was built um, to help Irish workers uh, who were fleeing imperialism and and famine and, and whatnot. Uh, and the, yeah, amazing scenes, mate. Brought a tear to my eye to see. <laughs> Uh, the the hardcore soccer fans in that club, thousands of Palestinian flags. Saw the same thing at AC Milan. Uh, saw the the Chilean national soccer team wearing Palestinian scarves as they ran out. Um, saw I think it was Kyrie Irving. Uh, we've texted on his shoes in game one of the playoff series in the NBA. You know, free the oppressed. Uh, we've seen uh, an Arab swimmer. Uh, break down after winning the world championship, refusing to celebrate. We've seen uh, uh, an, an Arab female tennis player uh, do yeah, the same um, thing, break down crying, donating her money to Palestine. So there's a lot of examples. Yeah, I think, um, and it's, it's impressive, you know, that people do that. It's like actually using your platform that you have and also knowing the risks that will happen career-wise, you know, that you face career-wise and, and kind of doing it anyway. We've seen some actors with that too. I think like the Scream, there was a Scream actor who was fired for um, expressing support for Palestine and um, and then colleagues of hers quitting in solidarity um, and <laughs> taking on these these overlords, which is, is quite cool to see. Damn straight, comrade Smallsy bra. It's on for young and old, and it's on all over the globe. I believe it was Hunter S. Thompson who said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Well, we're turning fucking pro, cunts, all of us. Now, to take you out a little treat from the reggae master, Buju Banton, this is his classic, Rise Up. Now my little boys and girls, have you ever seen Carried in a basket I say They're rising up Everywhere around the world Low wage and a high price market yeah. How will we Feed our little boys and girls Have you ever seen water Carried in a basket Cause of confrontation shall be economic crisis. It's not the fear of the Islam. 
vices. Hunger makes me need my satisfaction. Become so hard to resist. And they've got no consideration. I see only hardship. And so they're rising up everywhere around the world. Low wage and high price market. of labor pays in comparison in comparison to price and if they should raise the minimum wages we would also see taxes rise all across the world in one accord in one voice the people the people are so dissatisfied you see them in the middle east you see them in the south in the north and the americas whoa 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 rising up everywhere around Well, how will we feed our little boys and girls? Have you ever seen water be carried in a basket? Hey, that boats have been on your face for too long with every inch of brown freedom slips like sand. No chance, no way out, no escape plan. No longer one race, one group, it's now everyone. Go everyone fighting for your survival, eh. 